0: For the past few weeks, we've been in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, and we've been looking at faith, the concept of faith, and what faith can do, what faith does in us. And uh, tonight is part five, and the final part of this series on faith. And I hope it's been a blessing to you, and I am encouraged by what the Lord's done in my heart, just as we've examined this one chapter in the Word of God. You know, all the Word of God is rich, every bit of it. But uh, it's really something when you can spend five weeks uh, in a chapter and not have even scratched the surface, of, and we've not. Uh, there's so much more that could be said about Hebrews chapter 11 than, than what we've said. But tonight I want to spend a few moments, and I want us to look at the idea of this sufficiency of faith. Let's begin reading at verse number 32. The Word of God says, And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak, and of Samson, and of Jephthah, of David also, and Samuel, and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God, having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Let's pray together. Lord, thank You for this day. Thank You for this time that You've given us. Thank You for Your precious Word, Lord. Thank You for Your patience with us, Your long-sufferingness towards us. I pray that You would accomplish Your will in our lives tonight. and Father, that You give me the words that I need to preach. Lord, help me to say everything You'd have me to say. Help me not to say anything that wouldn't bring You glory tonight. Father, we'll be sure to thank You. We love You, Lord, and we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we have examined Hebrews chapter 11, we've seen faith in the life of Abel and and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and the children of Israel and Joshua and even on the part of Rahab the harlot. But as we come down to the closing verses of Hebrews chapter 11, there is a very distinct theological shift that takes place because as the Hebrews writer is summing up Chapter number 11. He's given example after example, and we'll touch on a few of them here in a moment. But he then begins to sum up and wrap up all these truths and give them to us in a truth that is going to change our lives. Now, as you look in chapter number 12, and I know we're not studying chapter 12 tonight, but I can't help but say a word about this while we're here. You know, I've found this. You, If you'll just preach the Word of God, eventually you'll come around to saying everything. Amen? Everything that needs to be said, you'll come around to saying it. But then when you come around to saying it, you better say it, because it might be a while before you come back around there again. And so in chapter 12, this verse is very familiar. The Bible says, "...wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses." Now, what does that mean where he says, "...seeing we also are compassed about..." with so great a cloud of witnesses. Well, we understand from that word also that there is a parallel being drawn to us in this day of grace that we live in, and those that were in the Old Testament. They have been the topic and the subject that the Hebrew writer has been dealing with. And so what it's telling us is that if they were able, as Abraham did to sojourn in a land that was not theirs, to have a testimony in a wicked world that hated them, that despised them, uh, that saw them asunder, that stoned them, uh, that pierced them, ran them through with a sword, that cast them out to wander in the desert and in the wilderness, if they in that day and that dispensation could by faith stand, then surely you and I in this day of grace can by faith stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I say that because I think there's been a lot of misunderstanding about that in Hebrews chapter 12. And, and I'm not here to fuss at you or, or, or gripe at you, but there's a lot of folks like to think that that means heaven's like a big fishbowl and everybody's looking down at us. Now, you say, preacher, why do you have a problem with it? Well, I, I, I've got a problem with it because it's not true. And we need to understand the Word of God. It's not that if you want to believe that, I, I, it doesn't really bother me other than in as much as it's not true. And I believe we're helped when we believe what the Bible teaches, not just what we want to believe the Bible teaches. And so the clear context of Hebrews chapter 11 provides that truth for us. But now in the verses that we've read, we have basically three themes that are set before us. Now remember, we're thinking of the sufficiency of faith. Uh, I I think it's really summed up in what the, the writer says there in verse number 32, when he says, And what shall I more say, for the time would fail me to tell of? In other words, he's saying, if I wanted to sit down and write every instance where faith has impacted this world and the lives of those that live within it, time would literally fail me to do so. Certainly in this short sermon tonight, we don't have time to touch on all of them. But even the Hebrew writer is saying, I've run out of time. He, that, that's, if there's ever a time when you see the preacher shining through uh, in the writings of the Apostle Paul, I think it's right here because he's saying, now listen, I've got one more point. That's what he's saying, you know. He's saying this is my last point, I promise you just one more. He's saying the time would fail me to say all that I want to say. Let me say that we'll never run into a situation that faith is not sufficient for. We'd run out of the time it'd take to describe the situations before we'll ever run into a situation that faith could not address and could not deal with. Uh, Christ said it this way, in, in, or the, uh, John said it this way, excuse me, in John five 4, uh, 1 John 5, 4, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. There's nothing that you can't face with faith in God and faith in Jesus Christ. And so in these passages, we have three themes, three veins of thought that I want us to touch on. Notice first off, the triumph of faith. Now, there are a lot of illustrations and examples given in these verses, but they basically divide themselves into two categories. There's a category about, about what faith can accomplish, what faith can do, what faith is, enables us to do and to bear. And then there is what faith can see us through. And the first couple verses deal with the triumph of faith. What does faith have the ability to accomplish? Well, first off, look at those names that are given. He says to tell of Gideon, my, how how we could preach on Gideon and the life of Gideon. Here Gideon is, this uh, simple and scared man, uh, hiding as he threshes his wheat so the Midianites won't come and take it from him. And when the Lord comes and speaks to him, he says, Thou mighty man of valor. That's how the Lord addressed Gideon. And Gideon did this. Who? Say what? He said, No, Lord, you must be mistaken. Here I am hiding and threshing wheat. I, I mean, that's like, you know, you ever see people, I'm sure you've seen them do this, uh, they, they pull up to the ATM and they get some money out and then they go up and park like 200 feet away to count it. You ever seen them do that? That's what Gideon's doing with his wheat. He's threshing it and he's hiding so that the Midianites won't come and take it. But you see, by faith he was able to become that which he wasn't by nature and God was able to do something in him that was unnatural through faith, if he would believe what God said about him and what God said about his circumstances and trust the promise and perspective of God, then something great could happen, and it did happen. It says Barak, and we know Barak from the book of Judges. Uh, It says Samson. We wouldn't think of Samson really as being a a person and pillar of faith, Uh, but uh, you try and kill that many Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey, it'll take a little faith to do that. Certainly Samson did some great things in his life. I'm puzzled by this next one of Jephthah. We don't know a lot about Jephthah, except that Jephthah, Jephthah, it takes a little while. I'm just going to say Jethro, because that sounds better, right? Jephthah made a vow concerning his daughter that if the Lord gave him a victory, uh, that he would uh, sacrifice whatever first stepped out of his house to meet him when he got back home. And the first thing that did was his daughter. And the Bible says that Jephthah performed that vow. Now, I don't understand everything the way God understands it, and thank the Lord that, I, that that's not how dumb God is, that I could understand everything uh, that he understands about it. But in some way, God looked at Jephthah either in that narrative or another narrative and saw faith. Now, I don't know if it's because he believed that God would not ask of him anything that was not in his best interest to give or why, but Jephthah, as mentioned, certainly he did pay a steep price. David, in the life of David, David's life begins with faith. I mean, the first time we find David, he's out in the field, uh, you know, of uh, the sons of Jesse. And, and he he's such a runt and he's so scrawny uh, that Jesse doesn't even think to go get him from the field when Samuel is anointing someone to be the king over Israel. And then Samuel says this, that the Lord looks not on the outward appearance, but on the heart. Now, that's faith right there. Because you and I, we can't look on the heart. So we have to believe what God says about the heart. And so they trusted God and believed God, and David believed God. By faith, he slew the giant. By faith, he slew many nations. And we could go on and on about the life of David. And then Samuel. I think Samuel's a pretty interesting Bible character. You know, Samuel, uh, he, he's sort of the last judge and, and the first prophet, as, as we think of a prophet as a national office uh, in Israel. And, uh, you know, Samuel, we really don't know a lot about Samuel doing any great and mighty miracles, but his was a life of faith. And uh, he says this about his life when he comes down to the end of it. He says, I've not taken anything from anyone's hand. I've not defrauded anyone. And he's giving this address to the nation of Israel. He said, if there's anybody in this nation that can step forward and say that Samuel has taken anything or robbed anything from you or gotten anything by ill gain or by uh, unfair advantage, then step forward. Nobody can step forward. Let me say that it does take faith to be faithful. I fear that sometimes we're not faithful because we lack faith. And so certainly I think that Samuel is a fitting example of faith. And then we have this category of the prophets is mentioned. And so all these examples are noted. These are things that, that God didn't have time for in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews. And He says, time would fail me. But then look at the deeds and actions that they did. We see the accomplishments, not just the examples, but the accomplishments of faith. I think this is interesting. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness... Obtained promises. Now, all three of those things took faith for the men that did them to do that. We could go through all of the examples in the Old Testament, and we could, we, we could comb the pages of God's holy Word and find example after example of times when kingdoms were subdued by faith. But can I give you one that's already been touched on uh, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, and that's the walled city of Jericho. Certainly, that was an action of faith, That took place. The Bible says, wrought righteousness. And let me say that it does take faith. Somebody's got to believe that righteousness can prevail either in a a family or in a church or in a community or in a a state or in a region or in a nation. Somebody's got to believe that righteousness can prevail for it to prevail. Uh, Revival has never resulted from unbelief. Revival only takes place where people believe God for it. And so there's no question that revival and righteousness being wrought is an activity of faith. But then notice this, it says, obtained promises. Now that's interesting. It doesn't say obtained the promised thing, but it says obtained promises. You'd be amazed how many promises God's made you in His Word that you're unaware of you're unaware of. The Bible, Peter said it this way, talked about those exceeding great and precious promises. Whereby, listen now, whereby we are made partakers of the divine nature. In other words, there's so much more that God wants for us than we realize. And if we by faith would believe Him and trust Him and scour His word for these promises, we wouldn't just obtain the thing promised, but we'd obtain the promises. You say, well, why do I want the promises if I can just have the thing promised? Because sometimes it's not about the thing promised, it's about the promises. You know, it was a great day in Abraham's life when he learned uh, that uh, the the greatest gift from God was God Himself. When he learned to love the giver instead of the gift. Well, you'd be amazed what a promise will do you in, in nights of darkness and despair and discouragement. Sometimes it's about exercising that faith. So we see the accomplishments of faith. But then notice the escaping of faith. There's a shift in the wind of what's being written here because the first three things mentioned are great things that faith can do. But then the next few things that are mentioned are great perils that faith can protect us from. Look what it says in verse number 33, "...stop the mouths of lions." Daniel is the first that's mentioned in this passage, and certainly it was faith that accomplished that. Now you say, well, I thought the angel of God came down and and shut the mouths of the lions. But the angel of God came down in response to Daniel's faith because he trusted and believed God to protect him. You say, how do you know that he had faith? Because in the face of certain judgment, punishment, and death, he still three times a day prayed towards Jerusalem. Now, that's faith, to believe that God will protect you even when you're doing what's right and even when people don't want you doing it. I I think our young people have a great need of this truth in this day that we live in because they are going to face things that I'm not going to face and that you're not going to face. Young people are going to face persecution and pressure and oppression like you and I have never had to face. By and large, growing up, no one ever told us we couldn't read our Bible. Most of us have never had to make the decision read our Bible or go to jail. You know, or stop reading the Bible or go to jail, one of the two. We've never had to face this the difficulty of either stop praying or go to jail. But our children, our children's children, very well may have to face that. And have to make the decision of whether to follow God or to follow man. So it says that stop the mouth of lions, quench the violence of fire. Here we go with Daniel again. Shadrach, Meshach, And Abednego, and I don't have time to dwell on all of them, but let's just read them. It says, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight. I think of David's mighty men. And also think of Jonathan and his armor bearer who slew so many of the Philistines. Turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Do you remember? And there's a lot of examples of this that could be given. But do you remember the night in which the angel of the Lord slew 185,000 Assyrians? I think sometimes the historical impact of that is lost on us. I mean, you realize the Assyrians were the most powerful uh, nation and empire. They were a world empire at that time. And they were bloodthirsty and they were a military machine. And here stands the little uh, nation of Judah and the little walled city of Jerusalem. And there's no chance that they're going to survive. But in that night, the angel of the Lord showed up and smote enough Assyrians that that great uh, lion of Nineveh had to turn and flee back to his den. That's a remarkable thing. And that was accomplished by faith. You say, how was it accomplished by faith? Well, when Rabshakeh sent the letter intimidating Hezekiah, Hezekiah took that letter and laid it before God, and he sort of said, Lord, what are you going to do about this? It's your people. It's your nation. It's your covenant. God, answered in response to your sovereign nature. Faith accomplished this. It says in verse number 35, women receive their dead raised to life again. There's no greater enemy that any human being has than that of death. That of death. Death is a universal principle. Whoever you are, unless the Lord comes back first, you're going to die one day. I'm going to die one day. Death is the undefeatable foe. And yet we find in the Word of God that even that great enemy that was unassailable and undefeatable, was defeated by faith. Probably the Hebrews writer is talking about the widow of Zarephath and her son, but there's a hundred examples of it in the Word of God, of times when death was overcome because people believed God. You say, preacher, does that mean that the Lord's going to raise my loved one from the dead? No, but He'll do a far greater miracle than that. He might raise your living loved one from the dead, the deadness of their sin and trespasses. And He has the ability to do that. And faith has the ability to do that if we'll put our faith in the Lord. So we see the triumph of faith, some things that faith can accomplish. Then I want you to notice the toughness of faith. Uh, there's probably a classier word I could have used, but, but I like the toughness of faith. What can faith enable us to endure and to do? Look at verse number 35. It says this, "...and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better..." Resurrection. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, i got a lot of information on that verse there, and there's a lot of interesting stuff from commentators that I could tell you about it, but I'm not going to take the time to do it, so you're going to have to buy your own commentaries. But suffice it to say this, that when you read that language, what it has the idea of is people being stretched out over a whipping post or over a post where they would be beaten. There are examples of that during the time of the Maccabees. I don't know if that's what Paul's talking about. I wouldn't be upset if that is what Paul's Talking about. Uh, But that's uh, the the only time in in history that closely correlates uh, to the use of that word here in Hebrews chapter number 11. But the thing that interests me is we just heard how that faith had the ability, listen carefully, faith had the ability to raise the dead. And then here in this passage, we find that faith has the ability to meet death. Look what it says again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. That they might obtain, now this is interesting, a better resurrection. Now, I don't know about you, and we'll talk about it here in a moment, but usually if I use the word better, I've got two things that I'm comparing. For instance, I might say, uh, you know, this is better than, that. I don't know, I, I, I run off half church saying that, but, 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 you know, you might say, well, a Chevy is better than a Ford, or a Ford is better than a Chevy. I don't know. If you want to fist fight about it, go ahead. I, I bought a Subaru, amen, and, 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 I, and, I, and it hadn't worked out great. So, I mean, I'm not into that fight. I'm just saying, usually you're comparing two different things. So what is the Hebrew writer comparing the spiritual resurrection to? Well, it's found in the languages there, not accepting deliverance. And it's being symbolic, saying here these people were being tortured and being faced with death, not accepting deliverance. In other words, kind of like during the Inquisition and times like that when people would say, just renounce your faith, just renounce salvation by grace, just renounce this. And they had the opportunity, here they are headed for death, and it would have been like a resurrection if they had just renounced their faith and denied the Lord Jesus Christ. But by faith, they didn't accept deliverance. Why? because they believed in a better resurrection. They believed by faith it would be better to die for Lord Jesus Christ than to live and disgrace Him. Now that's remarkable. That's remarkable. Faith has the capacity not only to defeat death, but to meet death. And that's a lot more applicable maybe for me and you, because the truth of the matter is, you and I, one of these days, if the Lord tarries, we're going to face death. And I'd a lot rather face it in faith than in fear and unbelief. So we see faith has the ability to do this. And that's sort of an introduction. We see that faith endures persecution. It says in verse 36, "...and others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment." Uh, Let me tell you, I I don't recommend books a lot from the pulpit because there's only one book that this pulpit is about. Uh, But it'd do you a little good sometime to read Fox's Book of Martyrs. And don't go down to Lifeway and get one of these little skinny copies that they've cut everything out that might offend somebody. Go and find you an old copy. Whenever uh, whenever John Fox wrote Fox's Book of Martyrs, it had this big old long name, and it came in about six folios. And a lot of that is is uh, church history that you probably wouldn't be interested in. But if you can find a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs that's about that thick, get it, buy it, go home, and read it. And it would astound you, the things that took place. I'm reminded of a man by the name of Polycarp, and Polycarp they, uh, was a uh, was a Christian, and he was faithful, and he loved the Lord, and trusted the Lord. And they took Polycarp, and they decided that they were going to burn Polycarp at the stake. So they tied him up, and they put all of the uh, flammable materials all around Polycarp, and they lit it, and he wouldn't burn. He wouldn't burn. And there he was, tied up, singing and praising God, and he wouldn't burn, and they had to figure something out. So they came, and they took spears and they thrust through him, trying to kill him, and he wouldn't die. And the blood of Polycarp poured from his body and put out the flames that were around him. And there he was for hours before he finally succumbed and died. It would astound you, the thing. We have it easy, friend. Oh my, do we have it easy. Maybe that's why our faith is so weak in this day that we live in, is because of how easy that we've got it. I mean, maybe that, maybe that's why people aren't as genuine. There used to be a time when yeah, it meant something to say you were a Christian. And it might cost you something to say you were a Christian. We're headed to times, I believe, in this country, and I, and I, I may be wrong, and I, and I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think I'm wrong when I say that we're headed to times in this country where it's going to cost you something again to say that I'm a Christian. It might mean taking away your property. It might mean throwing you in prison. It might mean even facing death. Would we be willing to? So we see that faith allows us to meet persecution and endure persecution. Then we see in verse 37, it allows us to endure perishing. It says they were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword, and allows us to meet death and meet it certainly. Then look at verse number 37. It allows us to endure poverty. It says at the end of verse number 37, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And they did it by faith. Now you say, preacher, that doesn't sound very appealing. Well, remember, they looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. I think that I try not to say too many things about heaven authoritatively that the Scripture doesn't say authoritatively. There's a lot of nonsense uh, that, that people say and believe about heaven that just isn't scriptural. And, and I try not to say and, and, and share. But I, I, I do think I can say this authoritatively. I do think I can say this, that you couldn't find a single person in Hebrews chapter 11 that regrets the, the cost that they paid. If you could talk to them today, I don't think you'd find a a single one that would say, I paid too great a price. I suffered too great a loss. I endured too great of affliction. If you could see them now, and I think that's what Paul's saying. He's saying in this passage, they endured all this and they endured it by faith because they were looking for a city whose builder and maker is God, which hath foundations. And oh, if you could see them now, you'd see the glow on their face and the joy in their eyes as they're seated around the throne of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, and they don't regret a thing that they did. By faith they did this, because they looked for something that the physical eye cannot see. They looked for something that human intuition cannot sense. They looked for something that human understanding cannot fathom. And they did it by faith, by believing and trusting God. So we see the toughness of faith. Then I want you to notice this in closing. Look at the next few verses. Verse number 39. The Bible says this, And all these, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. We see the triumph of faith and the toughness of faith. But in this little ensemble of verses, we see the transition of faith. Now remember, we're talking about Old Testament saints, but Paul's not writing to Old Testament saints. Paul's writing to New Testament saints. And he says a few things about them. That way we understand where, what he's speaking of, where he's coming from. I want you to notice first off, their position. The Bible says all these have obtained a good report. Paul doesn't want it thought for even a moment that these in the Old Testament had some sort of lesser salvation, because they did not. I understand, and we could sit and talk about uh, paradise and captivity. And I'm aware of that, and and we may say a word about it in a second. But don't think for one moment that the salvation of Old Testament saints costs anything less than the salvation of New Testament saints. Uh, I I know that uh, folks don't like the idea of looking towards the cross or back to the cross, but I think that's sort of juvenile language, because God's outside of time, and He inhabits all time. And Christ was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And so there's no question, regardless of how much light Old Testament saints had, regardless of how much they understood, there's no question that the good report that these saints had was the result of the finished work of Calvary. And Paul says these obtained a good report. God looked at them and said something good about them. I think he's saying more than just that God commended them. Because we're only people of faith. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And so evidently they had heard from God, and God approved of their life. And what I believe the Hebrews writer is saying is that these Old Testament saints, they died, but they died in the Lord, to use simplified language. So we see their position. But then I want you to notice our privilege. He says, "...and all thee, and these all, having obtained a good report through faith, receive not the promise." Now, what does it mean when it says, received not the promise? It means they didn't receive that which all the promises of God were culminating towards, and that was the Messiah. Not a single person that's mentioned here in the Old Testament saw the Messiah, at least in His earthly body and in His office, as a Messiah. They were promised the Messiah, but they did not receive, they did not see the Messiah. They died in faith, even having not seen Him. Now, what about those of us that know that He's come, that know that He's died. We're on the other side of Calvary. What about those of us uh, that have a completed Bible? That's what Paul's trying to say. He's saying if faith could sustain them, then faith can sustain you and I. They, They didn't have all these things, and now me and you, we do have all these things. It says in the next verse, verse 40, God, having provided some better thing for us. Now, what better thing... Is He talking about? Well, I got to looking and, and I, you know, it stuck in my mind as I read that. I, I thought, boy, that's interesting use of the word better. If we're going to understand what God means by this, we need to understand what better means and, and, and what kind of better things that God has provided. There's no greater place to find a commentary on your Bible than in your Bible. And so as I look through the book of Hebrews, wouldn't you know it, that the, the book of Hebrews has the word better Thirteen times, twelve other times than what we've read in this verse, the word better is used. Well, you can go through and you can find some of them, just have a little bit of context to them, and, and they're not dealing with anything of great theological import. But as I went through, I found seven things that are mentioned in the book of Hebrews that you and I in this day of grace have that was better than the Old Testament saints had in the day that they lived in and in the dispensation of law. And I want you to follow with me. It'll just take us a moment. Look back at chapter number 1 of the book of Hebrews. Chapter number 1 of the book of Hebrews. Now I want you to look beginning in verse number one. The Bible says, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the world, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the power, word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the Majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Let me say that in this day of grace that we live in, we have a better witness than they have. God at sundry times and divers manners spake by the prophets. You know, sometimes we sit there and we get kind of down on ourselves because we don't get to see the things that Elijah did. And we don't get to see the things that Elisha did. And we we get kind of down on ourselves. Boy, I wish I had had been with the disciples. And I'd see, let me tell you something. You have a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed. Never before in human history, except uh, in the past few hundred years, have we had a Bible like we have a Bible today. I, I mean, we've got something special in this book that we have. We're not clinging to scraps of animals. Parchments and uh, cobbled together letters, passed along in secret. But here we are tonight, everybody in this room, if they want to be uh, with a beautiful copy of the Word of God, complete and in order and how it ought to be, and not a single thing in there that ought not to be, and not a single thing missing that ought to be there. I mean, we've got a better witness in this day that we live in. We've got a better witness. But then I want you to notice the second thing. We've got a better witness, but turn over to chapter number 7. We see a better witness. but And I'm going to read a few verses here in chapter 7 because I think it's worth reading. <laughs> Amen. But look at beginning in verse number 1. The Bible says this, For this Melchizedek, now, most of you know who Melchizedek is in Genesis chapter 14. Most of you are familiar with that. Uh, Melchizedek was the, uh, the king of Salem and the king of peace, the king of righteousness. Kind of a mysterious figure in the Old Testament. He just appears on the scene after the destruction of the armies at the Vale of Siddim, And after Abraham uh, takes back uh, his nephew Lot, Abraham goes and listen to what it says. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but uh, made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And verily, they that are the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. And without contradiction, the less is blessed of the better." I think we've got a better witness, but I think we've got a better priesthood. The Hebrews writer is saying, hey, listen, if you want to find out if Christ is a better priest, well, he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. And Levi, he was still in the loins of his daddy Abraham at that time, or of his granddaddy, or of his great-granddaddy. I don't have the chronology worked out right now. But he was a descendant of Abraham, and everybody was supposed to pay tithes to the Levites, but here the Levites are paying tithes to Melchizedek, and Christ is pictured by Melchizedek. And so we have a better priesthood. We have a superlative. Our priest is higher ranking than any other priest. I know we say he's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and I believe that, but I think he's also the Priest of Priests. We have a better priesthood than they have. You and I, we don't have to go through anyone to get to God other than the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we, we have, I believe in the individual priesthood of the believer. And, and you know why I believe in the individual priesthood of the believer? Because I think the great high priest of our profession uh, dwells within the individual believer. And so we have the capacity to go before God. So we have a better priesthood. Look down in, uh, in, chapter, in verse number 19 of chapter 7. The Bible says this, For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. I think we've got a better hope than they had in the Old Testament. I think we've got a better hope than... And they had in the Old Testament. You say, why is that, preacher? Well, because in the Old Testament, uh, the hope that's being talked about is the hope that the law gave. And the hope that the law gave was just that you could live your life, do your best to not make God angry, do your best to not offend God. The, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Try to be the best Jew that you could. Uh, but if you messed up and if the nation messed up and uh, broke that covenant promise and relationship with God, then God was going to chastise you. But you and I, we don't live under fear of that in this day that we live in. The hope that we have is not the hope of a kept law. The hope that we have is the hope of a coming Lord that Jesus Christ is returning and He's going to change this vile body to be made like unto His glorious body. And this sin nature will be washed away and done away with and banished and abolished forever. That's the blessed hope that we have in the day that we live in. We have a better hope. I want you to look at another thing. I told you I had seven, so don't be surprised. Look at verse 22. The Bible says, "...by so much..." was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. I think we have a better testament. Can I use this word? We have a better will. That's what a testament is. The Bible says that a testament is of no effect while the testator lives. A testament is a will. And I believe we have a better testament than they had in the Old Testament. I think we've got more in Jesus Christ than the Jews have in Abraham. I, you say, well, preacher, I don't know. I mean, it seems like you'd want to be a Jew and the elect and, and part of God's covenant pro- I understand that. Let me say, as a Gentile, we're included in that covenant if we have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But let me say this. We've got a lot better promises than a plot of land in the Middle East. We, we've got a lot better. I mean, listen, we, the Bible says that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Everything that belongs to Him belongs to us because He has died in our place. And we through His death have entered into the riches and glory of His inheritance. And we have an inheritance, Peter says, that is incorruptible and fadeth not away. I think we've got a better will than they have. Look at another thing. Uh, look at verse number 6 of chapter 8. you You're probably If you've got a Schofield Bible, it's on the same page. Verse number 6 says this, But now hath He obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also He is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. Now, I could have dealt with both of them separately, but, I, but I'm not going to because time won't let me tonight. I mean, I'm like the Hebrews, right? Time would fail me, amen? But, but I see in this passage that we have a better covenant than they had in the Old Testament. The covenant that they had in the Old Testament was that if they obeyed God, God would be their God and they could be His people. But the Testament and the covenant that we have in the New Testament, God said, I'll write my law upon their hearts. I'll call, people that were not a people shall be called a people. People that did not know me are gonna know me. I mean, hey, the Jews may have entered into a covenant relationship, but you and I, we were brought into a covenant. We had no business in that covenant relationship. We had no, as a Gentile, we had no business knowing the God of heaven, but a greater covenant than the law has been given, and it's the covenant of grace, not of works lest any man should boast but a covenant of grace. I'm thankful my salvation's based upon the grace of God. Nothing else. Then notice this, verse number 23 of chapter 9. Look what it says. I like this one. I've I, I got to be careful where else I'll just stay here and we'll be here all night. But it says, It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. The context is speaking about the uh, uh, the red heifer of the Old Testament and the offering of the red heifer and how that they would take those ashes after they had uh, killed the red heifer and they they would put it in water in in the laver and that would be used to purify things and. And it's talking about uh, that red heifer. It's also talking about the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel when, when Moses took uh, blood and dipped it in hyssop and uh, sprinkled it uh, upon the nation of Israel and upon the book of the law. Uh, but what it says is this, that the, the, the earthly things that Moses sprinkled were but a shadow and a type of the heavenly things. And so the heavenly things, meaning the throne room and presence and place of God, It had to be purified with better sacrifices than the earthly things. The blood that was applied up there had to be greater than the blood that was applied down here. And so God gave a better sacrifice. I'm thankful that this man, after that he had made one offering for sin, sat down on the right hand of the throne of God forever and expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. I'm glad He's not on the cross like some would have us to believe. He's come off the cross. He doesn't have to be on the cross. He doesn't have to go back to the cross. What He did on Calvary, finished it, completed it, perfected it, now and through all eternity. You and I, we're not like the Old Testament worshippers that year after year continually had to come there and uh, those sacrifices could not make the comers thereunto perfect or they would have ceased to offer. You and I, I don't know about you, you may have sheep raising in your backyard, but I don't have any raisin here at the church right now, amen? If I did, it'd be for a leg of lamb, not for sacrifice. There's no need for that because there's already been a sacrifice made. Then notice finally a seventh thing. Look what it says in chapter 11 where we began. Look down at verse number 16. The Bible said, But now they desire a better country. That isn't heavenly. Let me say that in this day that we live in, we have a hope of a better country. The truth that's being conveyed in this passage is that the country that Abraham was looking for was not Canaan. He found Canaan, but he kept sojourning. And so the notion is that Abraham was looking for a heavenly city. And that the change that had taken place in Abraham was not just that God had called him out of Ur of the Chaldees and called him into Canaan, but that God had called him out of pagan darkness and into a walk of faith. and, And now he had a hope. But let me say that for you and I, we can see more clearly now that city that descends from the heavens, that's going to be seated down upon Mount Zion, that's called the New Jerusalem, from which the river of life will throw a flow out of the throne of God, where the uh, tree of life will be planted on either side of a street of gold and it will give forth its fruit every single month out of the year, where there's no need for any sun or any moon or any stars because the Lamb is the light of that city, where no evildoer, no idolatrous, no wickedness, no whoremongers, no dogs can come into that city. Oh, we're looking for a better city than Abraham looked for we're looking for we're headed to a better place than they could have hoped for and then finally we see faith's perfection that without us they should not be made perfect that word perfect doesn't mean sinless you've been in church any amount of time you've heard a preacher say that before but what it means is complete and what the lord's trying to say here is this something think about it it's not a promise And a delivery on a promise unless you have both things. I can come to you and I can give you something. But if I give you something, I've given you a gift. I've not given you something in response to a promise. You gotta have a promise to get an answer to a promise. By the same token, if I don't give you a gift, all I give you is a promise. That promise is incomplete. They both must be there. And so the Hebrew writer is saying this. In the Old Testament, they have promises. In the New Testament, we have the promised one. Remember what Paul said? He said, all the promises of God in Jesus Christ are yea and amen. You know what that means? You know what yea means. It means yes. And you know what amen means, don't you? It means let it be so. In other words, in Jesus Christ, we have the promise and the promised thing. In Jesus Christ, we have the culmination and the satisfaction of everything that God ever wanted to do for humankind. We have Him. Not just what He has, we have Him. Oh, what a glorious thing it is to have Him. They could stand in the Old Testament by faith. I think now that we live in this day that we live in, with all these better things, I think we can stand by faith. I think when we don't stand, it's because we try to stand in unbelief. But I believe if we'd stand in faith, in response to the Word of God and in faithfulness to the Lord, I believe we could stand. Wouldn't you like to have a consistent Christian walk? Well, that I think most Christians would feel like they were a good Christian if they could just be consistent. If you're like me, I'm not even worried about quality. I'm just worried about quantity most of the time. I'm just worried about staying steady and staying faithful. And it's great encouragement to me to know that by faith I can stand. By faith I can do that. Listen, faith is sufficient for whatever you need.